Welcome to the Bolt Zone. This is a competitive magic podcast for the average spike, co-hosted by me, Cody DuBose, and the reigning magic world champion, Nathan Stoyer. We're bringing you the best tips, tricks, and strategies to improve your game and be a better player. Nathan, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing good. I'm glad to be back on the show after a little bit of a hiatus leading into Barcelona, but I'm super excited to kind of go over the modern process leading into Pro Tour Lord of the Rings and cover some parts of Wilds of Eldraine, which I'm sure... We're both pretty excited about. Yeah, absolutely. The set's looking really cool so far. And we have an exciting show today. As Nathan said, we're going to be recapping sort of his time in Barcelona for the Pro Tour, talking about the state of modern in general. And in our next episode, we're going to be doing a modern primer, sort of like we did for Pioneer a few months ago, to get you ready for the upcoming RCQ season, which is going to be modern. So we'll be doing more of a deep dive into some of the different decks and archetypes. So you can you know, pick your deck for the RCQs and, and have a better grasp on the format. But today we'll just do just touch on that real quick. And then, yeah, we're going to be talking about some of our favorite spoilers from Wilds of Eldraine. Obviously, we don't have all the cards yet, uh, but we have seen some really cool ones so far. And we'll talk about how those could impact some constructed formats. But before we dive in, just a quick thank you to everyone who takes the time to listen and support the show. We appreciate all the feedback and support. The last episode was was really great. And I know Jake was super happy to to hear that it did well. So we appreciate you taking the time to listen. No new reviews and no new patrons this week. But if you would like to support the show, you can do so by leaving us a review on the podcast platform of your choice or by signing up for the Patreon. You can help keep the lights on here at the Bolt Zone for as little as a dollar a month. And this fall, we're going to be adding some sweet new rewards to the Patreon. No official updates yet, but stay tuned for that. And we'll have more info for you on that soon. So if you want to check out the Patreon in the meantime, we'll put the link for that in the episode description. And thank you again to everyone for the support so far. So Nathan, let's go ahead and just start talking about your experience in Barcelona for the Pro Tour. Obviously, uh, I'm sure... You had a great time there. The team handshake did really well once again, which uh, at this point isn't super surprising. But tell me a little bit about your experience, your time in Barcelona. Yeah. So leading into pre-T Lord of the Rings, a few things that were in my mind were, you know, when we're undergoing the process of there's this new overpowered or I guess highly powered set compared to a standard set, the first things you have to identify as a team are, what sorts of cards are going to create new archetypes and what sorts of cards are going to add to archetypes that already exist. And so the process for Team Handshake this time around was first, we have to start with that identification. Um, A lot of that work was kind of easy to find out with the release of the One Ring, the namesake card in the set being so powerful. It meant immediately we knew, okay, this card's going to create new archetypes on its own and slot in perfectly into some archetypes that needed a bit of help. And the existence of, or addition rather, of Orcish Bowmasters was probably a bigger presence than the One Ring, in my opinion. Um, what it meant for the format was the format suddenly got a lot of the one mana threats invalidated by a card that actually had staying power into the late game. And so this meant that the presence of Ragavan and Dragon's Rage Channeler were going to go down in stock, and our team's testing accordingly meant that we had to find out how how much worse are these decks and what specific variants of decks that include these cards get worse, which ones yeah. get better. So with that process in mind, I guess the, the central cards that 
we identified and that were quickly explored as very good options modern were the weighted halfling, orcish bowmasters, the one ring, and then sort of a sleeper pick throughout testing was how good are the land cyclers. And so we saw as the format developed for a few weeks that the land cyclers were increasingly more and more on people's radar and doing better internally. We actually very quickly um, identified the strength of some of the ones like Oliphant and the, the Black Troll, actually. And we even got to a point where our team was playing those cards in versions of Scam, uh, supported by copies of Persist, with the general model here being that, you know, having redundancy in the Scam deck as opposed to, you know, having this 20 land count deck that couldn't really provide a ton of additional ways of ensuring you wouldn't get mana screwed or flood was a real problem. So... Those were kind of the cards that we quickly identified. I I'd want to ask you about the scam list that you mentioned with the land yeah. cyclers in it. Because this week, actually on Twitter, we've seen that list pop up a few times. And like that had kind of been off of the general radar, I think, uh, in favor of just like the traditional scam. So it's interesting to hear that you were talking about this, you know, weeks ago. What what were the kind of the conclusions you came to with that build compared to the regular build? So it was kind of split. My... Our team captain, David Inglis, or Tangrams, spent a lot of time working on the versions with Persist. And I think ultimately they registered a version maybe with one Persist or with two Cyclers, but it's a very small change to the deck. It would be like you play 19 lands and then two land Cyclers. And the real distinction here is like if you're playing the Oliphants in your deck, you have more red cards for Fury, which is more of an issue than having black cards for Grief given that the blackout in the deck is just higher. Sure. That's like a small benefit. Um, I'm not really sure how good this, the cyclers are. Like playing it, a tap land is a really big cost to your deck. So ultimately, I think that I, I haven't really came to any conclusions as to whether they're much better, but I, I think that that's the sort of idea that can change the entire deck on its head if it ended up being good. So I'm all for exploring options like that and testing. Yeah, I think it's definitely worth exploring. And when I saw some of those lists pop up this week, I was like, oh, that's definitely a different look. I'm not sure if it's better, but I'm interested in playing some games with it. But okay, I just wanted to blow that out for a second. But go go ahead, what you were going to say mm -hmm. next. Yeah, so anyways, let me just walk through sort of our deck transitions and what happened internally, where we jumped from. We started and thought that, okay, we're going to take this Rhinos deck, which we thought was good beforehand, and test how it is against the field. Initially, we thought that Rhinos was pretty weak to the One Ring decks, like Four Color, in the versions we were playing earlier Four Color. And this was before we had Lauren revealed in our Rhinos deck, okay? We spent a bit of time and identified that Scam was good. We weren't sure how good, however. We thought Living End was quite a good deck in the format, and we thought Four Color was really good. So those were sort of our top dogs. We thought that, you know, Four Color in particular, we had a build of uh, that Oliver Tomiko, one of my good friends and someone who's a very good deck builder had worked on. And his version was something that was pretty unique. He was playing actually for Karn, the great creator in his deck. And he was playing a lot of cheap removal to support this. He got to play Gigantha and the rest of the shell was like traditional Omnath, one ring to fairy, Ren, delighted halfling. But getting to play the Karn was meant to be an improvement across the board in a lot of your matchups. So that was a build that I spent a ton of time working on, and ultimately it didn't really pan out. I thought that 
the main strength of it was it had a good scam matchup, but it just was a little weaker than I'd hoped for in other spots. So yeah, that's where that clunky with all the four drops. Exactly. And so, you know, the traditional experience I have with had with this modern, with the modern format rather is that decks slowly started to have more issues pop up as I played more with them. And and this is a trend that like, maybe you felt this when you've played with absolutely, but it's like, man, my deck feels so good for the first five to 10 matches. And then I play more and I realize, oh, wow, these issues are actually kind of real. And like every deck has some of these issues. So you have to find the deck with the least issues. It's really hard to find the best deck that doesn't have issues because all of them just sort of do. Sure. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. That was a part of testing where I felt a little lost. I was like, ooh. And this is about two weeks out at this point. I'm like, man. I feel like all the decks that I've tried, we have good versions of, but they're all kind of mediocre and they all have some issues. And, um, you know, we we got to a point where we thought Scam was going to be the most popular deck by a decent margin and then enter into Rhino's week of testing. So this was like, you know, a week and a half uh, before we were going to Barcelona. And I, along with Javier Dominguez, who we also had in the show, was just like, oh, wow, this new Rhinos deck popped up. It's playing for Lorien Revealed. That seems to fix a lot of issues in the deck. Why don't we test this? And I had played a lot of Rhinos in the past format, and so naturally I was like, ooh, I love Rhinos. Like, I'm going to try to make Rhinos work. Yeah. And we tried, and we thought Rhinos was quite good, but we ran into some problems with the Rhinos deck. We thought that, actually, surprisingly, you know, I wasn't really sure to feel about this, but my team thought Tron would be quite popular at this tournament. And at that point in time, I was like, why are people going to play Tron? It doesn't make any sense to me. And we thought Rhinos could not be very good against Tron, despite a lot of what we had tried, just like the fundamental uh, mainstays in the deck just don't work that well against Tron. And Tron winning the die roll is a very bad match for Rhinos. So that was the main issue one. We thought Tron was going to be popular, and I wasn't sure to feel about that. And then the other thing was... We thought Living End might be popular. And this is where I think our team kind of missed something. We had Tristan Wild LaRue, who was championing Living End in a lot of testing. And he was like, you know, Living End might be popular. And for me, I'm thinking, ooh, I don't really know how many people are going to play Living End in this tournament. But anyways, I think that us identifying those two as popular matchups meant that we thought Rhinos was going to be a worse deck than I think it was in reality. And the, the nail in the coffin was we played Rhinos in a set against Four Color. And a lot of the early assumptions we had about Rhinos not being that good against Four Color kind of panned out in that set. We felt some weaknesses. So that was kind of the last draw where we decided to put Rhinos down. I, I want to, at this point, sort of get into what going to Barcelona and the testing house looked like. I'm curious to hear your thoughts of like how the modern format changed through uh, through the release of the 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 way to set Lord of the Rings and some of your You could just say the one ring. <laughs> the one ring, <laughs> exactly. the one ring yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I, I think that those are all really good points. And I also, you know, leading into the modern RCQs, like being already queued friendly, and I don't really have a reason to play Pioneer anymore. I don't like the format. So I've been playing modern. And I also have just kind of been running through a lot of the top decks just to kind of get a feel for, you know, where everything's at right now. And the last time I had really played modern was I was on five color creativity and then you know all of a sudden that deck just got really bad so I was trying to find you know a, a new deck and I 
was also on the Rhinos train for a while. I thought that, you know, Lorien revealed that card is is amazing in that archetype. And like you said, just solved a lot of the problems that the deck had, but not enough to solve all the problems and some of the other popular matchups. So, you know, I, I pivoted towards Scam as, you know, the, the deck that I sort of wanted to try next, and I ended up loving it. I've been playing that now for about a month or so and have had good results with it. I um, came in second at a store championship two weekends ago, and then last weekend uh, made the top eight at like a 130-man Apex tournament uh, in Caldwell, Ohio. And that was really cool. I went six and one and drew into the top eight, got unlucky and died to creativity, which is ironic in top eight. But the deck just feels really good. It, it fits, you know, my play style of like wanting to play a very interactive game, you know, having a lot of information about your opponent's hand and being able to plan your next two or three, four turns accordingly. So, yeah, I think modern is in a really interesting spot right now. And Going into the pro tour, seeing the changes, you know, where we had scam on top, rhinos was on the upswing. We had seen the four color deck sort of going all in on ring it was really interesting because I don't I don't know that I expected to see so much Tron. And, you know, I think obviously you guys and your team brought uh, the most successful build, but we did see quite a bit of it. And so I think that even with ring definitely took me by surprise. And I'm wondering, you know, if, if other people felt the same way about that. Yeah. So let me paint a new picture for you. So we show up and at this point in testing with Team Handshake, I think that we were kind of scattered. Like what we've kind of the general theme we've been talking about, it's like Modern has a lot of very powerful strategies and it's really hard to be aligned as a unit as to what the best one is. And my philosophy going into testing is you know, ideally we would identify what the best strategy is. We would all be aligned and decide like, this is what we've put the most effort into. We all recognize this and have convinced each other that like this is the strength of playing a deck together. And we're all playing the same strategy, but that wasn't really a realistic thing to have happen. So we kind of had some clusters of groups break out uh, amongst our team. We had Tristan Wild LaRue playing Living End, who was currently working with Carl Serap at the time, and he was uh, playing Living End. We had Alan Wu and Stefan Schutz, who were two players in the team playing Murktide. And then we had David Inglis or Tangrams playing Scam, kind of in his own corner, where the rest of our team was sort of unsure what to play. We, For myself, I was still sort of interested in Rhinos, but... By the time I had flown out to Barcelona, our team had sort of emerged with this idea of what if Tron is good, actually? And this came from a place of, we think that Tron is bad against Scam. So <laughs> that's like the first assumption that we were pretty confident. We were like, well, Tron is actually bad against Scam and Scam's the most popular deck. So we should play yeah. Tron, right? Right, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that aside, it was just like, well, we think this match was bad, but like, what about the rest of the matchup spreads? And going down the line, we just felt like, wow, like the matchup spread is still really good. Four color, we think is a slam dunk. Great matchup. Their way of winning. They need Viseju and Ren. We think, okay, if we go to Rhinos, we think Rhinos will be more popular since it's emerged with a better version in the past few weeks. We think Rhinos is really good. We can't figure out a way for Rhinos to have better than like, a 35 to 40% matchup against Tron in our eyes. And so we think that matchup is very good. 
Okay, what other decks are there going to be that show up? Blue-Black Ring, we thought was a slam dunk, just a really solid matchup. And then, you know, going down the line, we thought Murktide was favored. We really didn't think that there was... We thought Living End was really good. And so our idea going into it was just, we think Scam is a bad matchup, but are there even other decks that we're too worried to play against? And so this was the general sentiment going into testing at the house. We had an Airbnb with 15 of us that were staying about 45 minutes outside of Barcelona. And we all got there about six days before the Pro Tour. So when we all showed up, we spent about two days sort of figuring out what we wanted to do. If we wanted to walk in Tron, we knew we could always back up default to scam and thought that David Inglis had brought a very good version of scam. So we trusted that if we wanted to play that deck, we could just resort to playing his deck and there would be no worries at all. So that's always, you know, an invaluable thing to have on the team. Knowing that you can do some riskier things in testing and default to a good version of the deck is a really good place to be. It just yeah. lets you essentially not not worry so much about getting it wrong because when you get it wrong and it's the last day of testing, you just know, oh, okay, I can spend 10 hours a day playing this other deck that I know is good and it can't go that bad. Right. Yeah, that, that kind of goes back to what we talked to in the or talked about in the testing episode with Javier is like the importance of having a team and having that that plan B to fall back on while you're going to take kind of take a gamble and, and do some brewing. So now let's enter Handshake Tron. And what is what is that about? What does that look like right now? Cody, do you, I'm sure you got a chance to look over the list, but do you know off the top of your head some of the specifics that we changed? I'm curious if you like saw some of the, the Tron decks differences. Yeah, I mean, I... I spotted the talisman. I don't have the deck in front of me right now, but I, I, the talisman was different. I know that you guys had went down on uh, big Karn and up on worm coils in the main. Uh, I feel like there was one more that I don't remember off the top of my head. We played a pile of dismember in our main. Deck. Yes, that was the other thing, the, the extra dismembers. Yeah. So like I was saying a second ago, the difference between our perception of the metagame and what we ended up submitting is we actually thought we fixed a lot of issues with the scam matchup. Um, of course, those percentage points are coming in the matchups that you think are good. So you're making those matchups a bit closer. But our general principle here was, okay, what is the main way that we're losing scam games? Well, here's the issue. We lose a lot of different types of scam games. We lose when they go grief scam turn one and we're on the draw and they have other disruption a lot of the time. That's a hard draw to beat. We lose when they have Ragavan on the play into a ton of disruption a lot of games. We lose to Fury Scam on the draw a lot. Mm-hmm. And then the biggest issue, which you know, a lot of people in the tournament didn't actually know, given they hadn't tested a lot against Tron, was the strength of Dothy Voidwalker in the matchup. Yes, we saw that. <laughs> we saw that happen. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there's the flashy moments of we saw in camera Christian Calcano got his uh, Ulmog taken off of Thoughtseize and cast, which is probably the the highlight of my weekend watching coverage. Like, that was an awesome clip. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the real thing is, like, Dothy Voidwalker does a lot to prevent you from having win cons that matter. Mm-hmm. So this might seem like an insignificant issue, but the more we played, the more we realized how much this comes up, which is Karn the Great Creator getting stolen from you is like an automatic loss. 
if your opponent is to play a Dothy and you follow up their Dothy by playing a card in the Great Creator and getting something like an Ensnaring Bridge off of it or any sort of card off of it, yeah. and then they, they bolt your Karn or kill your Karn somehow and recast it, you lose. Like, you, you just lose those games. Even if you have right. Karn Assemble, it's really hard to win. So that was a huge issue that we found in testing, which is your Karn got Dothied a lot. If you got it Ragavand, you would lose the game. Mm-hmm. And the Stony Silence text was really good against our version of Tron with the One Ring and such. Yeah, just shutting off even like Chromatic Star too, like turning off yeah. the draw from that even. Exactly. And and that was actually a big thing. I We ended up cutting Chromatic Stars down to one from our deck. We had one Chromatic Star mm-hmm. and then we had one Sylvan Scrying in our deck. So all of these changes kind of started because we approached Tron from this vantage point of like, Nothing is a sacred cow. We could touch any cards in the deck that we wanted to and move them around beyond, you know, the the four maps and the 12 Tron lands. Everything else is fair game to tinker around with. And I sure. think having the freedom to break down the Tron deck and sort of restart it from scratch in this way allowed us to do things that were kind of outside the capabilities of other people approaching the Tron deck. You know, Tron from 2013 versus Tron Yeah, Tron's been the same forever. <laughs> right. And so we kind of approached it like this is a mid-range deck that, or rather, sorry, this is a control deck that can do some broken things. And mm-hmm. the unique strength of our deck is we have eight four drops that can end the game. So that's where this idea of we could play Talisman in our deck comes from, where the idea of, you know, we could cut down on the speed by playing only five Chromatic Star, Chromatic Sphere effects. We can play to Urza Saga, which was the other huge change in our deck to yeah. give us a fair plan in a lot of matchups where you just go uh, map for Saga or scrying for Saga. And these sort of changes ultimately were a big difference maker throughout the tournament that I think contributed to our team seeing a lot of success with an archetype that otherwise has been pretty dead. Yeah, I mean, even at the PT, like just the stark difference in win rate between you know, you guys' version and, and people on your team playing it versus, like, the field playing Tron was crazy. Yeah. And um, so, anyways, by Wednesday night, or, sorry, Wednesday afternoon, we had submission, and eight of us played the Tron deck, which I think we all had some part in contributing to. Um, the biggest thing that I had to get over was actually a big aversion to playing these sort of infamously luck-based decks that are, like, strategies where once you start the match... You are hoping that your deck lines up well against your opponent, but me as maybe one of the top players in the world is not going to get a big edge in terms of my ability to, you know, finesse around my opponent's gameplay sure, and try to sure. subvert them in some way. That's just not a realistic expectation when you're playing a deck like Tron. So I just knew I was going to have to get my edges elsewhere. And that also kind of took off some pressure because it meant when I was approaching the games in the tournament, I had this mindset of, I don't need to worry about my individual win rate in this tournament. I need to worry, like, is our deck good based on our collective record? Because me as a good player isn't going to see that unique win rate boost from being, you know, a better player than a lot of the field. I just need to make sure that our deck is performing well for it to have been a good choice for me. So Yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) The phrase that Javier kept repeating, which I loved and internalized, was trophies over agency. (laughs) And, you know, very fitting to see him and Simon Nielsen seeing a lot of success after kind of championing that mantra, which reminded me that 
it's okay for me to play a strategy that doesn't utilize my full ability to play better. I, if decisions are close, mm-hmm. I will default to a deck that gives me more agency. But if I think something is far and away better, I need to be willing to sacrifice that in order to try to reap the rewards of finding a metagame sm- slot that's unoccupied. So Yeah, and so that's that kind of what the decision lesson. came down to then? Yeah, that was a big lesson for me. It was how can I let go of some of these fears and just accept that a little bit of this agency is out of my control, which is a hard thing to do for me as a player. I mean, I always talk about, I want to get information and read my opponent's hand and figure out what plays they're making and try to break down the game in this way. And while Tron can do that, you oftentimes do this and then end up saying like, well, I'm just going to play my card. I can't do anything about it. Right, right. It doesn't affect your decision-making or how you're going to play the game. That's definitely a big lesson to learn. I, I feel similarly to you in the fact that like I would rather play a deck with agency. So I can I can imagine, especially with something like the stakes of the Pro Tour, that that's a hard call to make and something that's hard to give up. Right. And I think there's also a degree of like, I felt a lot of pressure going to this event. Like, to be quite honest, my success at the last two Pro Tours has felt to me like, well, there's this whole narrative around like uh, the streak that I'm on from Worlds to the two PTs and doing well. And well, it is very cool to hear my name in these sorts of conversations. It does come along with this whole set of factors where I feel like I need to do my best to keep up this image and do well. And so admitting that to myself and articulating that sort of internal struggle based on the conversations people were having made me feel a little bit better about just accepting, you know what? You're not going to win every event you play. It's just not realistic to expect that. But I can show up and I can make a big impact for my team. And actually, I put more hours into this event than I have for any pro tour in the past. This was the event I put the most uh, raw hours and testing into. So I was really proud of the work I did. Yeah, that's awesome. I think it's it's definitely like an unfair pressure that gets put on on you in this situation or anyone that's in like the similar situation of being on the hot streak and wanting to keep it going and like just adding that extra layer into something that's already like a stressful event where you're already putting pressure on yourself that's that's hard and for me my immediate thought was just you know going into worlds in a month which you know we'll talk about a little later i have to sort of adjust my mindset because this is a big tournament for me so I want to cover that a little bit later, but the last notes I want to talk about, I didn't even talk about the tournament rounds or just a quick breakdown of what happened in the tournament. And then maybe we can move on from this segment, but yeah, let's do it. So going into the draft, I was the feature drafter and this was the first time I've been the feature drafter round one of a PT. I wasn't feeling particularly nervous. The thing I was feeling badly about was I actually didn't sleep the night before the pro tour much at all. My bedroom was extremely uncomfortable in the hotel we were staying in. I was sleeping next to my friend who was snoring and I just didn't get to do my normal process of like, you know, going to bed early enough where I can function the next day and wake up and have a good morning and just, you know, be tournament ready. I felt really bad. A bad feeling going into it. Like when you're just feeling off, like physically, mentally, and you're like, oh man, now we got to do this. Yeah. And so I was feeling bad, but I was like, okay, like I can power through this and it's okay. Um, Sit down for the draft. I first picked a Nazgul, which I thought was one of the best uncommons, better than a lot of the rares in the set. was really happy with it. And then 
pack two or pick two rather, I had a really hard decision. And I think I ultimately made the wrong decision here, but I think it paid off. So my pick was between a Torment of Golem, one of the top commons, and a card that goes really well with Nazgul, just being another black premium card in the best sure. color, and a Moria Marauder. Moria Marauder being a red-red 1-1 one, one double strike. When it deals combat damage, you exile the top card of your library, and you may play that card until end of your turn. So my thought was this. I thought, well, I think this is actually quite a good rare I think black red is a good archetype and I think that I don't want to commit to being black here. So I'm going to take this red card to hedge in another direction. You know, I like red, white. And in the first pack I had opened a Mary, the red, white rare. Mm -hmm. And so my thought was, you know, there's some chance that this Mary comes around. It's a really strong pack. I'm going to take Nazgul from this pack and we'll see what happens. So then pick two, I take Moria Marauder over Torment and Golem. And I was pretty delirious and tired at this point, but I think there's a, a mistake in retrospect as I think black is just the best color and solidifying myself in it is fine. Even if I only get six more black cards that are premium, I could find a support color to go along with it and it's not a big deal. So that sure. was like the big thing in the draft that I think I messed up, but I actually got quite bailed out. I ended up getting... Three Mary Esquires, this red-white 2-2 rare that says when it attacks, you draw a card if you control another legendary attacking, it has haste, and as long as it's equipped, it has first strike. So I, I got three copies of this card, pack one, including the one in my opening pack, Wheeling, oh, and wow. <laughs> my red-white deck ended up having just a, an abundance of playables and good cards that I had to figure out how to build a deck from. So I ended up being really happy with this red-white deck. And that was the draft, but could have easily been in black, white or black, red. And I think my deck might've been a little worse. It's hard to say that might've been the right way of drafting it though. So right. that's yeah. a lesson learned. even if your deck ended up better, doesn't mean you drafted it right. Right. Like you said, you kind of got bailed out by the, the triple copy of Marion having it just kind of work out. <laughs> and, um, and then during the draft rounds, I started the first match. And I got paired into someone who was on my left um, of the draft. So I was passing to him. And he actually also was in red-white, which was a very good sign for me because it means that he's getting all of the cards that I'm passing to him in the same colors that I, I'm in. So he's ultimately going to end up having weaker cards overall. Game one, I moved into four. And I ended up losing to a top deck on the last turn of the game when I was presenting lethal. So I thought I had this game one. But... Almost win in my draft on a mold four game one. I get my last two games of the, the match. Start 1-0. Round two, I'm playing open decklist since I'm playing with uh, the feature table. And I see Horn of Gondor, um, one of the strongest rares in the set, just makes yeah. a ton of 1-1s. One <laughs> so good. And I see the one ring in his deck. So he has two insane colorless rares in his deck. Mythics. Two of the best ones in the set. And I ended up cheesing him game one through, I think, a blowout with a smite the deathless to deal three to something on a turn that I'd set up. And then game two, I ended up getting an escape from Orthanc, plus one, plus three flying. I just cheese him and get through his Horn of Gondor and ultimately win that way. So win a super cool match that way. And then a pretty anticlimactic finals. I scrape out a game one, actually a very exciting game one, that I win at one life. 
And then game two and three, I go to discard turn two, turn three. I keep a two lander with reprieve in both games two and three. And I ended up bricking and losing both of those games. So kind of anticlimactic. Very happy with that, though. So that was a draft. Um, sure. I'll gloss over these constructed rounds pretty quickly, but I ended the day 6-2 and didn't really have much to say. Honestly, super blurry. I don't even really remember what happened. <laughs> Probably wasn't playing my best magic. I was just spending as, all my mental energy was on the Morgans. And mm-hmm. I was like, if I can get my Morgans to be good, I'll be fine. And I ended up beating my teammate, Carl Serap, to which felt really good. In one of no the draw this rounds. time. No draw this time. <laughs> funny anecdote. I played him. I sit down and I offer him a draw, mostly messing with him. But like, he just sits there and he's like seriously contemplating him. He's like, no, no, I can't do it. And so I was like messing with him, offering him the draw in round four. But ultimately, um, I won that round and ended 6-2, which I was really happy with after yeah. losing to uh, one four-color control, which, you know, pretty good matchup, but can still lose to Besaju. Sure. So that was day one. Went to dinner, had a great time with Javier and Anthony Lee and my teammate in Corrigan. We all did relatively well. And then day two was kind of a disaster. I was in a pair uh, in a pod with Javier and I had a really rough draft. I drafted black green. I had a super hard to play round one, but I was luckily like had slept enough and felt good about the day. And I ended up losing in turn five of turns in the first match of the day. That's unfortunate. So that was kind of like a, ooh, like maybe I could have won if I had played a little better in certain spots, but such a hard game. I played kind of conservatively in one spot that I shouldn't have. I don't really know, but I'm confident that if it was round three or four of the day, I might have won. So mm-hmm. here's like... Yeah, you're not warmed up yet. <laughs> the wake-up round. I yeah. lose that round. I win round two of the draft. And then I proceed to have the worst day of competitive magic I've had. I go 0-6 from there. It was six rounds in a row. And the fashion that I lost these matches in was pretty crazy. I mean, you know, nothing to write home about. But I played against four scam decks in a row and constructed and got crushed. I just was on the wrong side of variance. I kept getting turn two Blood Moon, turn one Grief plus Furied, uh, taking my Dismember. All these crazy sequences were happening that I was like, man, am I wrong about this matchup? But my teammates ended up doing pretty well against it. I think we ended up going, you know, 45%, including me. So my my teammates were positive against Scam, but I ended up going 1-4 against it. So rough day at the office. And um, Javier and Simon Nielsen, our two teammates, did really well and top aided. So anyways, that's my quick recap of the Pro Tour. But it was a pretty awesome experience and like the actual pro tour itself could have gone better, but I'm not mm-hmm. unhappy with the results and going, I don't know, seven and nine doesn't feel great. Fresh out of a pro tour win, but sure, I tried sure. to stay in it every round after getting beaten up for day two and keeping my head in the game was like a test of trying to have good stamina that I think I did a good job of. So great experience. Yeah. Just, just to hang in there and like, going into day two into the constructed rounds and like you play the mirror and then play your worst matchup four times in a row like that feels bad so just having the capacity to like grind through that and at least play every round you know like that's still yeah like you talked about earlier having a different mindset 
Yeah, I, I even forgot to mention, I lost to the 75-card merit of my teammate the first round of Constructed, and then went 0-4 against Scam. And losing the Tron Mirror is like the, the most cringe, imaginable match. Of the week. <laughs> yes. Like You're both Mulgan and Infinite, the first person to play a threat like Karn the Great Creator, seven mana Karn, wins, yep. and it's kind of a luck of the draw matchup, to be honest. It is, it is. It kind of goes back to that giving up the agency and like seeing who draws better. <laughs> Yeah. Um, did you get to do anything cool in Barcelona while you were there? Like, or were you just testing? I know you were there for a little bit afterwards too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it was super awesome. So afterwards, we all went to Javier's place. His uh, house was about 30 minutes outside of Barcelona in a town called Palau. Mm-hmm. And the main things that were super awesome that we got to do there were we had a very traditional style lunch that we sat down for for a few hours. Um, just really, really good um, meats, cured meats, a yeah. ton of jamon and cheeses and bread. That was really good. I mean, the bread there is like way different than what we have in the U.S. Like the quality of their bread was really mm-hmm. high. Super impressed by just everything food-wise was great. Really enjoyed the paella and the croquetas that we had there. Yeah, and it doesn't get better than that. <laughs> my gosh, super great. Probably the most fun that I had was when we were at Javier's house, he had a ping pong table set up like table tennis. And we ran a little tournament with 15 people who were, or something like that. Maybe it was 12 people in the house. So we all played ping pong in rounds, like a double elimination bracket ping pong (laughs) tournament. And, you know, I think I'm pretty decent at ping pong, but these guys were also getting better and better as we practiced more throughout the week. And so- It was just a really good time, and ultimately, Javier ended up taking down his own ping pong tournament. Oh, nice. So. Home field advantage. <laughs> Home field advantage, exactly. So that was great. Loved that. And so, yeah, we were there for three days, and then Abe Corgan and I met up with our buddy Daniel Gochol, or Golden Cat on MTGO, mm-hmm. and stayed in Barcelona, where we ultimately just did a lot of fun touristy things there for two days before leaving. We went to... La Sagrada Familia, the church there, which was super fun. I really enjoyed that. We went to one of the local markets there, like a big marketplace. I don't remember the name, but just a super cool market with like a ton of food options. That was a really good experience. Sort of similar to like the Reading Terminal in Philadelphia, if you've ever been there. Just like a huge market of restaurants and places with vendors, you know walk around and get like 10 different things, one from each booth and try out the local things there. And That's really cool. I, I think that was a really fun experience. And then that was kind of it. Yeah, we explored and walked around and I loved it though. It was, it was my first time traveling internationally for a tournament and yeah, it was super fun. Well, it sounds like a great experience. Uh, I'm glad you had a good time. So I guess the last thing before we get into the next section, which I think we'll we'll skip the modern stuff today and just do our whole episode about that uh, for, for the next one. That way we don't have to rush it at all. But what's uh, what comes next for you? Worlds is coming up in September. The kind of what, what comes next? Are you like taking a break in between or what, what's what's on the radar for you? Good question. So I've mostly been I do coaching like we've talked about throughout the yeah. week and I've been trying to stay engaged and have my regularly scheduled coaching sessions, which has been going really well in terms of testing for worlds. 
I think that our team will start once the full spoiler list is out working on Cockatrice, which I'm going to be honest, it's really not my ideal platform. I don't enjoy it that much, but you got to do what you got to do to start testing early. And so what I predict is when we're done testing, uh, or sorry, when we start testing on Cockatrice, we'll uh, do a lot of constructed and standard brewing probably in, I don't know, a week or two. And then once the set can be played online, we'll start doing drafts. And there is a difference between this Worlds and Last Worlds that's very notable. At the Last Worlds, we had two constructed formats and we had a draft format. In this one, we have one constructed format and we have draft. Yeah. And what that means is actually draft has a super high premium in this tournament because there's two drafts. There's six rounds of limited and eight rounds of constructed. So it's almost equally as important probably even more important to be good at draft than constructed because mm-hmm. the edge that you can get in draft is so much higher. It's a new set. People won't necessarily have the same strategies figured out. And I expect that going into this, I'm going to have to put in double the amount of time into draft that I have for recent events because it's going to be so important to, to be good at this limited environment. Sure. Well, this set so far, at least with the spoilers we've seen, and I don't know, I don't know what your opinion is on it, but to me, it looks like it's going to be a very fun limited set. Um, a lot of the like commons and uncommons that we're not going to talk about today in detail, but like lots of stuff looks really interactive. There's like a lot of room for decisions. It looks like so far we haven't seen like great removal, but it also doesn't look like we're too bomb heavy in the format. So. And then, you know, you also have the like enchanting tales cards, the bonus sheet to like throw a wrench in the plans. But uh, it looks like it's going to be a super fun set so far. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking forward to necropotencing some people out at the That's the dream. (laughs) (laughs) Or blood No. (laughs) Even better. Even better. (laughs) All right. um, So we are going to talk about that in just a second. But before we do, we want to let you know that this podcast is brought to you by Boogie Board, the ultimate LCD life pad. Boogie Board's patented reusable writing service lets you track life totals and jot down quick notes during casual or competitive play. Never worry about ruining a notebook in your bag or running out of paper mid-game again. After taking down your opponent, just press the button to clear and you're ready to start over. Boogie Board's best-selling Jot tablet offers plenty of writing surface, while the Jot Pocket is perfect for tighter playing spaces. Boogie Board is available at friendly local game stores across the country and at major retailers. You can learn more at myboogieboard.com slash games. That's myboogieboard.com slash games. And I want to throw a personal anecdote in here for Boogie Board. When I was playing at Apex this past weekend, it was a big event. I had my Bolt the Bird Boogie Board with me and got a ton of comments on it. People were asking where they can get it. So Boogie Board is definitely something you want to pick up if you don't have one already. And uh, we would appreciate that. They would appreciate that. And we thank them for supporting the show. All right. So Wilds of Eldraine. It feels like it's been forever since we've had a standard set. It feels like March of the Machine came out forever ago. Aftermath like didn't really do anything. And, you know, we had Lord of the Rings. So that was all modern. We had Commander Masters, which is its own thing. Yeah. So it feels like we've had... Not much happening in standard for a while, but Eldraine is coming and it'll be here on September 8th. And just a quick note that any of the enchanting tales enchantment reprints um, that you see in the set, those are not going to be standard legal. That doesn't change format legality. These work just like Strixhaven mystical archive cards or the artifact cards that we saw in the Brothers War. Um, So we are seeing a lot of super cool reprints, but um, just note that these don't change any legality in the formats they're in. So mechanic spotlights. We have a couple of big ones that we've seen. 
Obviously, the sort of flagship one is Adventure. We had a lot of broken Adventure cards the last time around, but it seems like they've balanced the mechanic a lot more this time. Uh, What are your thoughts on Adventure coming back? Well, I think that Adventure is a mechanic that is very hard to balance just because when constructed cards are good, where you have two modes that are like both really playable, like for example, let's look at Bone Crusher Giant as an example. Pretty yeah. innocuous modes, right? It's a shock plus a creature for three mana. It becomes, you know, kind of oppressive to a lot of the one for ones available in standard otherwise. What I'm hoping for is like when it comes to these adventure cards, that they're going to put a lot of stock into making sure they're more so enablers than like key pieces in the deck. For example, like I I would love to have some sort of mana fixing available through them. I like yeah. what adventure cards are a little more expensive, to be honest. Like the the ones that I mean, there's one that I really do want to talk about today that just seems incredibly good, which is the black and red dragon, which I'm sure you've seen. Yeah, let's talk about that right now. We we can get into it. All right. So this card, I don't know the name of it. Do you know the name? Maybe we can pull I, it I'll pull it up here. You can start talking about it. I'll pull the name up. Okay. So it has two modes. The first mode is an instant for two black. So this is the the side that you cast to put it in adventure. It says, exile the top two cards of your opponent's library. You may play those cards, and you can use any color of mana to play those cards for as long as they remain exiled. So yep. three mana divination, essentially. Instant speed. Yep. And, and then Decadent Dragon is the name of this card. Decadent Dragon. Okay. And Decadent Dragon is a two red red creature flying dragon with when it attacks, you make a treasure token. So we already, know, <laughs> we already know how good treasure tokens are. Whenever I see a card with treasure, I now think uh, this card could be broken. Like immediately yeah. that's where my thought goes to because treasures are worth a lot. Like let's think about this. We play Lotus Petal in eternal formats. Like having an additional source of mana that you can use at any time mm-hmm. is a super valuable ability attached to a creature that your opponent already sort of has to kill. And if they don't kill this card, it just brings advantage every single turn. And if they kill it, you've three for one to them if you've used both chapters. If your curve Absolutely. is two mana Doomblade, three mana draw two, four mana cast a dragon, you've just done everything. And you, you've had a really strong start to the game. And this, I might add, is why adventures are so good. They fill a slot in your curve that you otherwise might not have filled. And if the effects of both sides are good, you've immediately generated card advantage and your keep range becomes a lot wider when you get to play these cards. Absolutely. So really like that the design of adventures uh, exists, but I'm hoping that the standard format doesn't look similar to the last time we had adventures where it's just (laughs) like three main adventure cards became the the key mainstays of the format or maybe four or five and people who can't play adventures in their colors or at least don't have good ones are sort of locked out. Yeah, something interesting this time around too is that they've done the sort of like two color adventure. So like on Decadent Dragon, it's it's black and red. And, you know, if you're not playing both colors, you're yeah. not going to get the full value. You're probably not going to play the card. So it, it does add an extra sort of layer into the deck building and, and thought behind them. Yeah, and then we, we are also seeing some adventures on like different card types. So it looks like they're going to be doing a cycle with enchantments where they have, you know, the adventure half and then it's an enchantment, the the virtue of blank cycle. And then obviously we have the different creatures. 
But let's talk about um, the next mechanic, which is called bargain. And so the way bargain works is you can sacrifice an artifact, enchantment, or token as you cast the spell. And then it sort of is a kicker-like ability where you get some bonus from casting the spell. You get you know, a better version of it when you do the bargain. And some of these bargain cards look like they're going to be super strong. So I'm interested to see you know, how easy it is to turn on that bargain mechanic and you know what you're willing to sacrifice we have quite a few pieces in standard already that like are making extra pieces of cardboard you know like vault and epicure making blood tokens blood tithe harvester with blood tokens we have things making treasure tokens making food tokens now so i think it's going to be super interesting and then also we have a lot of new cards in eldraine that are making roll tokens which we'll talk about in a second but you can also sacrifice those to bargain so what are your thoughts on this new mechanic I think that bargain is the sort of mechanic where if you make one good bargain card, it can sort of break the archetype. It's actually a really scary mechanic because it is absolutely <laughs> because it's it's not asking that much of you. Right, like a token is like not that hard to get, and it also is sort of printed in such a way where like if they tack on an ability that's just a little too good. These cards go from like, okay, the front half of them is kind of good without the bargain to, oh my gosh, this bargain makes this card really broken. And we're already seeing that with one of the cards spoiled, the one black, black, black um, yes. sorcery. Beseech the Mirror. Beseech the Mirror. Thanks, Cody. You're like the, the card name guy right now. <laughs> but that card seems really strong to me. Yeah. Do you want to like remind me what exactly the text on that one is, you know? Yeah, so it's uh, Basis Tamir, one black, black, black. It's a sorcery with bargain. The text reads, search your library for a card, exile it face down, then shuffle. If this spell was bargained, you can cast the exiled card without paying its mana cost if that spell's mana value is four or less. And then if not, you put the exiled card into your hand. So, you know, right off the bat, even just looking at standard in a black deck, this seems like pretty easily, you know, copies five through eight of Shouldred or a four mana tutor up whatever you need and cast it again it comes down to you know how easy is it to get away with that bargain but it this looks like a super strong card and then going back to like legacy this enables some like super broken combos with storm stuff and tendrils of agony and being able to like chain together for beseech the mirrors yeah this card looks super yeah scary. you're right besiege for besiege for besiege for besiege it's- yeah Sacking really like Misha's strong. bobbles for them. Like, it, yeah, it looks I crazy. Mean, also, these decks already want to play cards like Chrome Mox or like other things that right. generate mana, so it's kind of free. I predict that this is the sort of effect that we'll see a lot more play in Eternal formats. However, yeah. I am a little scared by the design of this card because Agree. <laughs> on its face, this is like a free, like, demonic tutor. Like, yep. if you get up to four mana and you cast a four drop off it, look, I mean, it's it's like saying Teferi Hero of Dominaria is three mana. I know it's not free, but like... But you get essentially... The <laughs> yeah, right. And, you get a refund. And when you do so, you are producing a pretty game-breaking effect here where like you're casting anything in your deck for free here that's four or less. Like it's, it's not limited to being black, which would have been my assumption. The first read, I think, I was like, okay, you cast a black card. Well, yeah, no, it's anything. <laughs> right. So you could, go get, um, you could go get one ring off of it or, you know, nope. whatever. It's also sick with the one ring. You sack the one ring. If you're going to die to it, get another one ring. Yep. Yep. Does and it you're cast casting it. So you, you may cast the exiled card. So you still get your, your ETB trigger. <laughs> that's that's kind of nice. You know, yeah. 
you you chain Besiege and One Ring together, and you suddenly have like access to a ton of copies. You're, you can lock out your opponents a lot easier. Yep. It, I mean, this seems like an auto include in like the mono black coffers deck in modern with ring there you know the three black cost can be a little a little restrictive but also you can get away with a lot so i'm very interested to see how this card plays out yeah. uh but anyway so that's bargain we'll talk a little bit more about bargain going forward but then the last the last mechanic to mention is is roll tokens so these are these are cool but they are a little bit confusing so there's six different roll tokens and uh basically these are like bonuses that you get for for casting a spell with bargain or some of them like come stapled onto adventure some of them are etbs and um let me pull up the card with with all the roll tokens on it so i can tell them correctly but okay so so they are token enchantments aura rolls is is the type line and what happens is they enchant a creature we have six of them. There's Monster, Royal, Wicked, Cursed, Young Hero, and Sorcerer. So each one grants a sort of different buff or downside. And the Monster token gives the Enchanted Creature plus one, plus one, and Trample. Royal gives them plus one, plus one, and Ward one. Wicked gives them plus one, plus one. And when the Aura is put into a graveyard, because these are tokens, they do hit the graveyard. Each opponent loses a life. And we'll talk about that one specifically in a second. Cursed roll is the enchanted creature gets base power and toughness 1-1. One, one. Young hero, whenever this creature attacks, if its toughness is 3 or less, it gets a plus 1, plus 1 counter. And sorcerer is it gets plus 1, plus 1. And whenever it attacks, scry 1. So there's a lot of different things happening. Again, there's a ton of different ways to get these rolls and having them be like six different tokens, I think is going to be kind of a nightmare to keep track of, especially in paper, but they are pretty cool and I'm interested to see how they play out. But let's talk about one that's sort of an example, and that's the card Not Dead After All, which costs one black mana. Uh, it's an instant, and it's going to slot right into Scam as sort of a strict upgrade for for one of our undying effects. Uh, but right. it's until I mean, life, right? target it's creature like... you control. When uh when the aura go the wicked roll token goes to the graveyard they lose a life so like this is doing the same thing as like your undying malice or feign death your grief or fury still comes back with plus one plus one it's not a plus one plus one counter because it's getting it from the wicked roll token but the effect is the same like it comes right back from the graveyard and once it hits there's no window for them to interact with it like it just comes in with that token attached so sort of a Strict upgrade there. It's a, it's a cool card. The art's sick on it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but excited. let's talk about another um, roll token card, which is just a different way to sort of look at it, and that's Spellbook Vendor. So this is one in a white. Uh, it's a creature human peasant. It's a 2-2 with vigilance, and it has, at the beginning of combat on your turn, you can pay one when you do create a sorcerer roll token attached to a target creature you control. And again, that's the plus one, plus one. Whenever those creature attacks, scry one. So this is like a weird, like, pseudo Luminarch Aspirant effect that you pay for. But like, you also get the upside of being able to scry when you're attacking with creatures. So what are your thoughts about this card? I'm not really sure, to be honest. I mean, it's tricky for me to evaluate, but I'm not really sure. What, what do you think, Cody? Yeah, I, I agree. It's hard to evaluate especially all these new like roll cards. But I think that it could be decent as like a, a nice two drop. The two two with vigilance is, is nice. And then we do, especially in standard, um, we have like a lot of human related buffs um, with like a copper coat Vanguard. There's, there's pretty strong support for like human theme right now. So 
we have that. And then also I think this could be like a neat way to like use your extra mana. A lot of times like the white weenie decks are are tight on mana, but like every once in a while you'll have like that weird situation where you have three mana in a two drop and this gives you like a way to reliably use that. Um, I like the design of it. It's very unique. It kind of yeah. feels like Luminarch Aspirant. <laughs> yeah. Like it is the Luminarch Aspirant, but pay one though, which is like kind of a cool effect. But the main issue is like these, we haven't seen a lot of great white based aggro decks in a while. And I don't know if the rest of the shell is there. That would be the main issue. Absolutely. Yeah. I agree. And, if, you know, if the shell never does a thing, then this won't show up. But if it does, I think this would be a cool inclusion. Um, but anyway, it, just another example of like how they're integrating these roll tokens just like everywhere. And again, coming in the same set with bargain, if you just have roll tokens everywhere, you know, if you're in a, like a black white deck for some reason and you're playing this and beseech the mirror, you, you know, pay one and create a token and then you can bargain that token away right away or on the next turn or whatever. And it's just giving you like a reliable source of fodder to sacrifice to bargain. So. I think the roles will definitely play a big role in this set, no pun intended. But uh, another role card to mention, Lord Skitter's Blessing. So this one, I'm very interested in this one because Phyrexian Arena is like a pet card of mine. And this card is one in a black for an enchantment. Uh, when it ETBs, you create a wicked roll token attached to a target creature you control. So this is the same one that... Um, not dead after all creates where it gets plus one plus one and when it goes to the graveyard it pings your opponent for one and it says at the beginning of your draw step if you control an enchanted creature you lose one life and draw an additional card so it's phyrexian arena <laughs> as long as you have an enchanted creature but you know you have the upside of being able to turn it off should you need to if you have like a sack outlet you can worst case kill your own creature to stop the lice off uh you can sacrifice the the wicked roll token with bargain I think this card looks pretty strong. What are your thoughts on it? I I like the card. I think the only issue I could see is it just being too slow for like sure. the white cards are printed right now. There might also be better grinded cards, but I think the design of it is pretty cool. And like, I'm going to have to test a lot with it for worlds. My current like plan right now is I'm kind of assembling a list of like where do strategies fit, like where do cards fit into strategies, what builds new strategies as like one of my strengths as a player is like I can tune strategies, but I'm not really good at starting like that baseline and sure. finding that foundation to work from. So I'm just trying to identify what the role players are. And this is certainly one that I'm going to try to test out because, you know, it could be better as it plays out than it looks on paper to me right now. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. We'll have to see how it plays out. Um, another one, we have Scalding Viper, which is sort of a brazen bar where an Eidolon of the Great Revel smashed together, but not quite either one of them. Um, it's one in a red for a creature. 2-1, whenever your opponent casts a spell with mana value 3 or less, it deals 1 damage to that player. And worth noting that this is just when your opponent casts the spell. And then on the adventure side, it's a sorcery for 1 and a blue that's returned target non-land permanent to its owner's hand. So like obviously both of these sides are worse than what they are on like the original cards. It's At sorcery speed, the like bounce effect is not as good. And then only dealing 1 damage is not as good either. But like this card seems like it's a lot of value packed into to one piece yeah it's kind of like brazen bar or light in a lot of ways yeah. more aggressive but being a sorcery is a huge downside obviously absolutely so i think that stops it from like getting out of standard but it could it could definitely have a role there i think if we see you know a viable 
is it deck, which we haven't had in a minute. But the next one I want to talk about for modern. This one's seen some chatter online. It's Agatha's Soul Cauldron. So this is Necrotic Uzi. And the talk right now is is for modern Yawgmoth. What this is a two mana artif- two mana legendary artifact. And it says, um, you may spend mana as though it were any color to activate abilities of creatures you control. Creatures you control with plus one plus one counters on them have all activated abilities of all creature cards exiled with the cauldron. And you can tap it to exile a target card from a graveyard. When a creature card is exiled this way, put a plus one plus one counter on target creature you control. So there's a lot of shenanigans you can get up to with this one. We yeah. have, yeah, in Yogmoth we have like, you know, if you have exiled a Yogmoth out of your graveyard with this, you can combo off with like just two undying creatures because you can, you know, go back and forth targeting themselves. If you exile a Gris the Hunger Tide, you can, um, any creatures with plus ones, you can start ticking them up to make insects and like they get the loyalty abilities of Gris. So in Yogmoth, this card looks like a house, but what do you think about maybe outside of there? Do you see this card making a splash? This card seems awesome. Again, like super unique. I love the design of it. I think Yawgmoth is a good home. I feel like it's going to be too slow for standard ultimately, but I could be wrong there. I mean, I'm sure there's a token deck that could take make use of it, but um, no, I, I really like the design of it. Yeah, me too. I think it's going to be a fun one to, to test out. Next up, we have Blossoming Tortoise. This is a two green green creature turtle it's a three three um, whenever it etbs or attacks you mill three cards return a land card from your graveyard to the battlefield tapped and it also gives activated abilities of lands you control cost one less to activate and land creatures you control get plus one plus one so we've seen some talk on twitter again about this card being a potential inclusion to test out in mono green and pioneer Right off the bat, you know, it makes Nykthos one less to activate, makes Lair of the Hydra a lot better, and it's sort of a redundant, you know, worse, but also costs four mana Cavalier of Thorns effect that's still giving you two devotion. What are your thoughts on this? I know you're not necessarily a mono green guy, but... I like the Tortoise. I think it's cute. I think people are overrating it. It's like a four drop that, like, needs a lot to be good, and I don't think it'll be that good in mono green devotion. I could see myself being wrong here, but I really think it's, like, probably too slow at the yeah, point of the that game. that was kind of my it. thought. That deck but, is like already so fast and like so consistent that it feels like it just doesn't need this. Yeah. So that is going to wrap us up for today's show. Um, Nathan, anything else you want to add before we head out for today? Super excited for Wilds of Eldraine. I didn't mention this specifically, but it was one of my favorite draft sets of all time when I got to play original Eldraine. And I'm really looking forward to a lot of the similarities showing up in this set as well. But Really cool episode. I'm glad we got to cover some of the unique cards as well as talk about modern. Yeah, absolutely. And we're excited to talk about modern again in the next episode. We'll be doing a deep dive there. So that is going to do it for us today. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Bolt Zone. If you enjoy the show, please give us a follow and leave a review on the podcast platform of your choice. We read every review and love to hear from you. If you want to help support the show, again, consider subscribing to the Patreon. That really helps us out. You can find the link for that in the show notes. Thanks again to Boogie Board for their sponsorship. And if you want to get in touch uh, with me and Nathan, have questions for our next episode doing a deep dive into modern, you can always do so on Twitter with the hashtag BoltZoneChat. We will keep an eye on that. And uh, if you have any questions or comments, we will get to those live on air in the next episode. So until next time, get out there and sling some spells.